Hey, Nicole. Hi, John. Ready for another one? Let's do it. All right. I'm Nicole Mears. I'm John Davis. And this is our podcast, Shape the Conversation. Nicole and I work together here with a great team at Shape.io. We're headquartered in Bend, Oregon, where we're recording from right now. So some background about us. We left our agency jobs as marketers to build software for digital advertising teams. We'll be talking about working and marketing and growing Shape.io on this podcast. Yeah, our goal is to just talk about our experiences, talk about what's worked for us, not worked for us, tough lessons along the way, and hopefully you can use some of what we talk about to shape your own conversation through the week. Why should you listen to us at all? Well, we're a profitable software company. That's a good place to start always. We're outside of the Silicon Valley bubble. We did raise venture capital funding in 2015, but haven't raised any rounds since. And on this episode, what are we going to be talking about, Nicole? We'll be talking about Mary Meeker's 2018 Internet Trends Report by Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. And just so you guys know, uh, we're going to do our best to talk through the slides and our thoughts on the podcast, but we'll also have a video with our audio and the slides up in case that's easier. Yeah, and we'll get that video up on our YouTube channel here in the next few days. For, for now, what we did was we each went through all, how much, 297 something slides like or something. Internet's a big place, takes a lot of slides, makes sense. And had each of us go through and pick what we found the most, 10 most interesting. No necessarily parameter, too many parameters around it, but just 10 slides that stood out the most to us. Nicole went through, picked 10. I went through, picked 10. And how many were the same? None. Not a one. I thought there'd at least be three or four, but I think it shows how interesting this report is and why it garners the attention it does when Mary Meeker puts it out. So, all right, Nicole, where'd you start? What These aren't necessarily your top 10, just 10 of them. We'll go through them in chronological order, at least Nicole's list, and then we'll hit my 10. But you started with slide number 26. And what, what does that talk about? Slide number 26, it's titled Voice Equals Product Liftoff, but it talks about Amazon Echo, its install base, and its skills. So in this slide, we see that in 2015 Q2, the install base was in the low, low millions. And in Q4 2017, it had jumped up to 30 million people. And that's just in the U.S. Just in the U.S. So the interesting correlation that you see is that Amazon Echo's skills in 2015 jumped from zero to 30,000 in 2018. And so my kind of thing here is it really struck me because not only was there a 20K increase in Echo skills, like seriously, what can Alexa do that I don't know about? That there's now 30,000 I was going to say, do you have an, do you have an uh, Echo? I do. I have an Echo at home, and I'm considering putting it in more rooms just so I can connect them and take over my house and make it all digital. So you're already finding value oh, yeah. in it? We love ours. What's, an exa- what's the most common way you use it? Okay, so this is kind of boring. Uh, we use it a lot for asking the weather okay. and setting timers. <laughs> but there's a lot of things that I know it can do. Like I said, there's a lot of things I know it can do. So the interesting thing for me, and I know Alexa isn't Google's assistant, but you talk about how Google's assistant is now going to be able to book appointments and not even really let the person on the end of the, the phone call know that it's artificial intelligence. Um, and so you just kind of think of like, how much more is that, 
that base or that that install base going to grow as as these voice assistants have more products. And here's the thing, like thinking about this, eventually, will this thing be able to cook dinner for me or will it be able to clean my house? And what I thought about is that if you have a Bluetooth enabled Roomba or you have a Bluetooth enabled Instapot, Alexa can probably connect with those and start the process, which is scary. I yeah. mean, we're headed towards robots. Yeah, I think we should, we could do a whole episode on Amazon Echo Assistant, those how they might affect you know your day to day life, but also start creeping into work life a little bit more. I know we just ordered our first Echo here for the office to kind of help out. So I think I'm interested to see how it affects our our flow too. All right, let's jump to your next slide. Yep, slide 36. This is really just a message. Uh, it says it's crucial to manage for unintended consequences, but it's irresponsible to stop innovation and progress. I just love the sentiment of the slide. Uh, It's something that I question every day when I'm thinking about our product. How do we avoid harmful unintended consequences? You know, autopilot's a great example for us. It's a very, very powerful feature that turns off campaigns uh, when it nears their budget at the end of the month and then turns them back on at the start of a new budget cycle. But it can be it can be difficult. It, it takes some time to learn it. And, and there's unintended consequences that we've seen. Um, how do we address that? And you think in this case, they're probably referring to Facebook, a lot of the data scandal, Cambridge Analytica, just pushing forward and not really seeing all the ways that Facebook potentially could influence stuff. I think this is tech in general. It's a, it describes kind of the modern struggle well. I don't think you're ever going to stop tech or curb the progress because the free market likes great solutions and tech is often the best solution to a problem. And so I think it it is a great message because it means we need to be conscious of how we manage tech, not the question isn't any more like if tech will take over our lives and become more and more of a part of our lives. I think that ship has sailed and it will. All right, let's jump to your next one. This was one that I almost included on my list, but but didn't. All right, slide 163 is titled Technology Equals Makes Freelance Work Easier to Find and that freelance workforce is growing about three times faster than the total workforce. So I'm not going to go over the percentages here, but you can see those in the slides that we'll post. Yeah, but freelance workers are growing at over a 3x pace from the uh, you know, total workforce. Like it says, why, why do you think? You have any theories? I do. I think the ease of connecting and networking to find jobs, you know, in some cases like our digital advertising world, you see these groups of peers willing to pass along referrals, whereas previously that had to happen on phone calls or emails, which were even, I mean, like that's still fast, but not super fast. You know how these Slack communities, Reddit communities, et cetera, that are passing all this along. So technology is really enabling that freelance workforce to grow really, really quickly. And, you know, I think we're seeing these more kind of like freelance environments or freelance kind of apps or technology that's enabling that even more. Yeah. And this is also just USA data to look at. And in in my opinion, there's there's one reason why this is really growing, and that's healthcare cost. I think freelance employees being able to bring on a consultant, pay a few months here or there, not have to take them on as a fully loaded employee, pay benefits, everything is another reason, I think, kind of pushing that uh, freelance total up. That and you also have the ability to work on your own timeline and time frame. And I think that's becoming more exciting to people as well. Yeah. All right. Next one, slide 165. On-demand workers. So there's 5.4 million 
which is a 23% growth over the last year, I believe. So real quick, sorry, sorry to cut in. What is an on-demand worker? I was going through the slide and I, I didn't know. And I didn't Google it. I just said, I'm going to ask when we talk about it. An on-demand worker is someone who, in the moment, you're going to ask to do a job. So if you think about an Uber driver or maybe a TaskRabbit okay. person, that's someone who's using an app to connect with you to do a job that you want done right now. Got it. Fiverr, maybe something like that. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So the jump is from 5.4 million in 2017 to uh, 6.8 so far in 2018. And we're not even halfway, well, I guess we're halfway through the year right now. The interesting thing for me is to think about is like oftentimes you are someone with a full-time job, but you want to work in the moment. Like if I didn't have an infant, an eight-year-old or eight-month-old right now, I might consider picking up some side jobs. And I think you're seeing a lot of that kind of expand. Um, and again, it goes back to technology, just making it easier to pick up those jobs, whereas that market didn't exist. Yeah. I wonder how many go? Uber drivers there are in the U.S. Oh, right gosh. now. I have no idea. Me either. All right. Next slide. 174. So this, again, connects with that, that last um, section or that last slide. Yeah, speaking of Uber. Yep. So it says no Uber driver partner has ever told where or when to work and that this is kind of remarkable. They get to decide, like I said, when and, when they, when and where they work. But at the same time, they're also able to not like choose when they don't want to work or where they want to work. So the interesting thing for me here is is the point that worker autonomy simply doesn't really exist in other industries right now. You see this in Uber and it makes sense, but is there anywhere else that this could work? I don't know. This like Uber may be a shiny unicorn. Yeah. I think if you're looking at it on demand, I, I, I think naturally those are kind of fit this bill. If you, but I do think there is movement in software and tech generally a little bit more to this picking when you want to work if you want to go for a run in the middle of the day, it's all right. People know you can have your laptop, so I'm going to work from home today. We have a really fluid office kind of set up here. Nobody's required to spend hours. You on support sometimes have to, and we have to make sure we have coverage during business hours and somebody's here, but I always like to think about kind of the office as an option for people to come to and work, and that's where I think, you know, employers and people need to think that way and and be treated the way they want to be treated a lot of people like being an uber driver because they they are their own boss setting their own schedule and being entrepreneurial and i think if you're gonna have great people around you you need to encourage that in everybody's life um that's part of your team absolutely all right next one another another uh text-based slide here from nicole really powerful data visualizations slide 202 Hey, it makes it easier not to have to talk about the graphs. Fair enough. All right. So this one is uh, a quote from Sundar Pichai. We should. We really should know that. I know. My apologies for butchering that. But he's the CEO of Google. And this is from February of this year. And I'm just going to read the entire quote out, which is, AI is one of the most important things humanity is working on. It's more profound than electricity or fire. We've learned to harness fire for the benefits of humanity, but we had to overcome its downsides too. AI is really important, but we have to be concerned about it. So again, to me, like thinking about the idea that AI is more profound than electricity or fire is mind blowing. And also thinking about the fact that, okay, fire was invented a really long time ago, but you know, electricity really 125 years we've had it. Yeah. Maybe a little bit longer. Gosh, cause it's hundred. Hold that thought for one of my slides that has data that will answer your question. But again, how do we harness that for the benefits of humanity while overcoming the potential for abuse and inherent risk? AI is, 
it's very scary, but it's also incredibly exciting. Yeah, I mean, Google and, and parent company Alphabet famously describe themselves now as an AI-first company. And I think AI is always a really tough one, and that's another great topic to really dive deep on. But I think in a weird way, AI is like really close but also really far away i think it's it's so hyped out in the press right now and it's such a buzzword that i think you've got a lot of companies out there touting ai solutions that maybe are a little bit smoke and mirrors like not true ai and so i think some of it is a little bit um, of a facade right now but there is a lot of obviously incredible work being done in AI and at the same time the rate of innovation is so fast so I think it's it's just a, a really tricky one where I'm interested to see if you're just going to have major players like Google dominate the AI landscape or if it's going to be penetrate every single industry every single company everybody needs to have an AI strategy in some way in the next 10 years or is that five years it's really tough to say all right, next one, slide 205. So this slide is it's titled Most Online Customers Share Data for Benefits. And in the U.S., 79% of us are willing to share personal data for clear personal benefit, while 66% of us are willing to share online data with family and friends. It's crazy to me that almost 80% of us are willing to share personal data for clear personal benefit. Now, it's, it's pretty concerning when you have these stories about like Cambridge Analytica and ads being targeted to you based on your political preferences and how that's kind of influencing the, the well decisions you make. But to what I was thinking about is what is the actual percentage of daily active users Facebook has lost? From everything I heard, it wasn't wasn't huge, but you know that was a couple weeks ago now. Q Q one two thousand eighteen Facebook added forty eight million daily active users. Well, and it's I mean that's. That's my next example. Like to give you an example here, I have friends tell me all the time about how they see these ads on Facebook and they're like, why am I seeing this? Or this is super creepy. And yet every time I tell them how to hide that ad or how to you know, mute that ad or how to even wipe out their preferences, they say they never end up doing it. And that's because to them, I think it's more useful to have ads that are contextually relevant to them, even if it is slightly creepy sometimes, than it is to completely wipe that slate clean and get really untargeted ads. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's a problem we're really close to thinking about advertising a lot and where Facebook fits into that picture. And I think we need to, as marketers, explore a little bit more the mindset of the general public with our day-to-day and ask more people around us like how they're seeing those ads. Because you, you get a lot of interesting stuff when you, when you ask your mom about Facebook's ads she sees and her impression of it. All right. Next slide here is slide 218. So I kind of cheated on this one because it's actually 2000, or 217 and 218 that I really want to talk about here. But what this slide shows is that today's top 20 worldwide internet leaders, there's 11 in the U.S. and 9 in China. And the interesting thing was is that in 2013, there were two Chinese public-private internet companies on that list. Now there are nine. Yeah, so what this says, out of the, the top 20 internet properties... All of them are USA or China-based. Yeah, that's nuts to me. It is, right? Crazy. I don't really have anything other to say than that. Uh, just, th- there's not too much else to say, I think. The growth there was notable for me and also the, the split between US and China. Yeah, and I think internet-wise, it's interesting how little 
those economies really overlap. You know, one of the Google really isn't that prevalent in China, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. All these other uh, social networks and search engines are really to just serve the Chinese market. And then even with just that, their market values in the five to six hundred of billions of dollars w- without even being able to serve like the global economy too much with their services just serving the Chinese market. That's how big it is. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. All right, next slide. 233. So this one talks about lifelong learning and how there are 33 million learners, which is a growth of 30%, uh, according to Coursera. So in 2014, we were at 10 million. 2017, we're now on about 33 million. The interesting thing for me, I guess, is just, you know, someone who tries to consume multiple books a month and continue learning, well, at least before I had my son, (laughs) it's good to know that I'm not alone as a lifelong learner. Kind of the largest pops are in, in... or the populations, not pops, sorry, are in North America and Asia. And the interesting thing for me is you see a lot of these top courses on this list, machine learning, neural networks, mathematical thinking, programming for everyone. It's, I think it's highly indicative of where we're headed from an internet trend. Yeah, and what we talked about freelance, remote work being easier than ever. If you're an English speaker, Note that number seven on this list for the top courses that Coursera is seeing is English for Career Development. And I I think that is a fascinating look into where we're headed with the global tech worker economy over the next few decades. All right. Nicole's last slide, slide 290. All right. So this one uh, talks about how 56% of the most highly valued tech companies were founded by first or second generation Americans. They've created jobs for 1.7 million people. This includes companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Oracle, PayPal. I was just blown away by the number of companies and the companies that I didn't know were founded by first or second generation immigrants. But mm. What's an example of that? Um, let's see. Oh, gosh, I'm probably going to come off like an idiot here. But like Texas Instruments was founded by a first generation uh, UK and a second generation Swede. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's still, in my view, this it's crazy how hard it is to immigrate to the U.S. still with a tech background or working at a tech company. You, I've got friends I went to college with that have been uh, working for years to set up a visa situation to work for their company in U.S. office, and it's just too costly, takes too much time, and you need a lot of uh, resources backing you to pull it off. And these are guys, college degrees, re- willing to come and add value, pay taxes. And it, it's really hard right now. And I think it's something that obviously it's a big issue politically in the U.S. right now, but is something that we really need to think hard about as a country is. And um, the brain drain is a phrase they talk about this, like people looking to start companies other places because it's so tough to bring people to work for you here. Mm-hmm. All right, now on to John's slide. All right. So I started my 10 slides with slide eight. And to me, this is if there was only one slide I could show to show the internet trends of 2018, this would be it. And slide eight shows that 50% of the population on earth essentially uses the internet. And that is an interesting tipping point, I think, in humanity. In a matter of nine years, it's gone from 24% to 49%. Yeah. What's it going to take to get to 75? How fast is that going to happen? 
I don't know. I'm sure projections. It's still a pretty linear growth, so it's gonna it's gonna continue. It just shows one incredible technology and how it's really changed every facet of the globe and and people's day to day life. And it's still kind of incredible, right? Like there is half the world without access to the internet. To me, that's still kind of crazy. There's 50% of the world's minds that we aren't tapping for innovation and product development. Definitely, yeah. Everyone's going to be developing a product, but... Yeah, I think the most positive way to look at the internet is as the world's hive mind. And we essentially aren't plugging into half of the minds in the world. So for me, I think for all the baggage and the negatives that tech and the internet might come with... It's pushed progress and it's pushed um, humanity and it's overthrown dictatorships and crazy things over over the years. And I think we need to think about ways how do we get that other fifty percent connected in to the, to the internet and on the same page with the rest of us. Moving on, slide thirty-two. All right, slide thirty-two. I love the simplicity of this number and this graph, and it it is. Facebook's annualized revenue per daily user. So this is, when it's all said and done, how much revenue, cash, Facebook is bringing in per year per everyone that uses Facebook. And that number's $34. So if you think about the billions and billions of users they have, that's all the revenue, but that number's up from $16, so more than 2x from just 2015. So in three years with Facebook's targeting and advertising, they've been able to 2x the monetization of people coming on the platform. And you have to imagine those are actually in markets that are not the U.S. in a lot of cases. So to be generating 2x of U.S. dollars off that is a pretty incredible stat and shows how they've been able to monetize mobile, which was the big question four or five years ago. And you know you have some brilliant minds there just thinking about how to make more money off of Facebook users every day. Yeah, Facebook and their advertising, I think is going to be a topic that's going to pop up on this podcast a lot over the next few months, especially as we're going to bring in some experts and, and talk to people really shaping the policies um, in Congress too. So it'll be really interesting to see the Facebook story play out and chronicle it along the way. All right, next slide. Oh, yeah, and by the way, Facebook has 1.449 billion daily active users. I know. I'm just shaking my head. I can't. It's hard to comprehend. And like I said, they added 48 million active users in Q1 of 2018. Think about any other app or any other service adding 48 million active users. It would be the biggest story in tech about this new app that's growing at a crazy rate. All right. Next slide. I jumped to slide 68. And this talks about the transformation of Google and Amazon and how they kind of are mirror images of each other. So this ad shows Google there. They started as an ad platform in around late 90s, 2000 with AdWords. And they're slowly moving into becoming a commerce platform. So Google Shopping. Uh, delivering products from Google directly, ordering products from the SERPs, kind of competing more directly with Amazon. 
getting devices in your home to compete with the Echo. So Google would prefer you to have, you know, your Google Home going in every room as opposed to your Echo. But Google started with the ad platform, moved to commerce. Amazon now is one of the biggest players in advertising. They've moved from pure commerce platform to an advertising platform. And I thought that was really just interesting how clear that these the two two of the biggest companies on earth have kind of come from either sides of the spectrum and are now meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. For me, it's interesting to think about, like, does that market become smaller as these companies become even more pay to play? So are we, you know, what happens when Google Home ordering only refers you to advertisers? Is that going to happen? Or are we going to put in limitations to prevent that from happening? Yeah, I think it'll be fascinating to see how those battles play out. Google has Nest, the Google Home with the Assistant now. Everybody knows kind of the the game is, okay, can we get a device in your home you're going to use and anybody in your family can call out to at any point? Is that going to run on our platform or the other guy's platform? And Google and Amazon are really the only two right now that have the entire infrastructure in place to deliver that kind of experience. Yeah, you've got that Apple HomePod, I think. It'd be interesting to battle them all against each other and see which one comes out superior. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. We'll get all three for the office and play around with them and do reviews or, or something. All right, jump my next slide. That is slide 96. So this is kind of breaks down a bunch of bar graphs of the percentage of time somebody spends consuming this media channel versus the percentage of overall advertising spend that goes to this media channel. So, for instance, print has about 4% of overall the overall attention um, of people, and that's way down from years ago. But they still have 9% of overall percentage of the advertising spend. Uh, radio, they're in a deficit. They still consume 13% of people's attention, but only 9% of the advertising dollars. TV is the biggest player. They've 36%. Of, of people's like attention is kind of consumed by TV and they get a pretty even 36% of the advertising spend too. The What this slide really points out is mobile. Mobile's the big one where everybody's on their phone now, obviously spending more time than ever on mobile. 29% of people's attention is on your mobile phone. Mobile is approaching television in terms of reach and um, owning people's attention, but they only consume 26% of the advertising dollars. So there's still a 3% gap between what mobile is garnering in terms of attention and what people are monetizing right now. And that's where I think mobile continues to be one of the biggest stories in the advertising space because of that. How can you crack that nut? It's a smaller screen. Where can I get the ad? Absolutely. This really isn't surprising to me from a digital perspective. It's just a little bit sad to me as a former print journalist. (laughs) (laughs) The print is... Is, is it's the worst. It's absolutely sad. Uh, yeah. And going down. I, I mean, it's. I'm worried, especially the trickle down effect of local newspapers and what that means in, in terms of society. But that's, again, maybe a podcast for another day. All right. My next slide was the very next slide, slide 97. This is one for me that I flip to immediately whenever Mary Meeker releases this report and I try to see where it's at. And this is raw growth in internet advertising spend. And the the graph shows that advertising continues to grow at 21, 22% year over year. 
um, the last three years, and total is up to you know eighty-eight billion dollars of average of ad spend, and this they might just be U.S. numbers. Yeah, just U.S. numbers. So, and the big growth here again is mobile. Yeah, they break the bar graph into two: desktop and mobile. Desktop is actually accounts for less internet advertising spend today than mobile does. And I think that's an interesting stat too, especially us as B2B marketers trying to use that. Like, you know, desktop is just, it's getting less of the attention. You need to be thinking about mobile and how, how your blog looks there, your website works there, how you can convert customers that way. Absolutely. Um, interestingly, coming from kind of our background in PPC and digital advertising, what's interesting to me is we've been hearing since 2009, it feels like we've been hearing every year is the year of mobile. But if you look at this trend and how it's it's progressed since 2009 with, you know, 2014, 15, 16, 17, really being the, the massive growth from 50 to 60 to 73 to 88 million. Yeah, I mean, every year has been the year of mobile, even though it's getting really annoying hearing that. Yeah. Definitely. And for me, all the negativity you might hear about internet advertising, digital advertising, I think this continues to show that it gets the best results. You know, the free market determines where they're going to put their advertising dollars. This is money coming from television, coming from other channels, being put into digital channels. And there's only going to be more and more money flowing into that funnel for marketers and businesses to optimize and think about. All right, next slide for me. This is the one when we were talking about electricity earlier. I said to to keep in mind for later slide one forty four, um, and this is the new tech adoption curve. So, it, what stood out for you here first when you were looking through this one? Okay, so my my biggest point on this is why did it take seventy five years plus for twenty five percent of adoption of a dishwasher? Yeah. <laughs> So to describe the the chart, it it gives a breakdown of how many years it took the United States to get to 25% adoption of a certain technology. So they have electricity, telephone, car, dishwasher, as Nicole said, the radio, and then how long it took to get to 25% of the U.S. using it. So the dishwasher took 80 years from when it was invented. Now, it does say it was invented in 1887. What's the what, what type of dishwasher are we talking about in 1887? It can't be that impressive. I'm thinking, you know, not until the 50s or 60s did you ever really have a dishwasher where you're looking at your neighbor like, okay, that's that, that I want one of those. Fair. <laughs> but for me, what stood out was the difference between something like the dishwasher and the internet. So the the internet took less than 10 years from really its kind of more mainstream like offering um, to reach this 25% penetration. The mobile phone was still, it was in that same time range under 10 years. Personal computer for reference, just over 15 years. But for me, this just shows how the rate of society is changing. And the other thing, I look at this chart, I go through dishwasher, radio, air conditioning, washer, refrigerator, television, computer, mobile phone, internet, what's the next? What's the next word that that goes with that? That that to me is fascinating. Is it AI? Is that even like categorizable as a tech in that way? What that next it is 
is what all of Silicon Valley and people are trying to think about. I mean, if you refer back to the last things we've talked about, maybe it's voice search. But that's, again, that's not really a product in its, you know, maybe it's the home assistant. Yeah, I think that's what makes it interesting. If you could describe it right now, you know, a lot of people would want to ask you a lot of questions about it. (laughs) Um, Next slide for me was slide 146. And this, I think they, they... Reput the the graph from slide eight there, where they've got just general internet penetration that is now fifty percent, like we talked about. But they add another line, and that other line is the global penetration of social media. And so, social media about fourteen percent of the world was using social media in two thousand ten. That number in two thousand seventeen, thirty three percent of the world is using social media and the the line with overall internet adoption going from 24% to 49% they they're running almost in parallel and why that's interesting to me is that it means that pretty much everybody that starts using the internet starts using social media yeah see and my my takeaway from here was like let's talk about the people in the middle though like who are those 16% that are not on social media well, that's over. This is overall penetration globally. So I, I see what you mean. Those sixteen percent are the same, maybe that were back then. Yeah, I wonder where that you know who that is. That's not on Twitter. Maybe is it? What's the demographic there? Is it older? Is it people like now worried to be on social media with all the data stuff out there? It would be interesting to pry down in that delta and that 16%, but it does show that people who start using the internet kind of today, they use social media. It's absolutely impressive. Yeah. All right. My next slide, this is another kind of like top level-ish sort of slide to look at. It's slide 191, and it goes through the American Customer Satisfaction Index Scores of Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, and Booking.com. And Amazon, their customer satisfaction index, 85% well above the U.S. average. Google's 82% well above the U.S. average. And even Facebook's customer satisfaction index, 72%. Netflix, 79%. What this tells me is like, you hear so many bad things sometimes about these companies and there are new overlords and, and yeah, that maybe some of the data gathering stuff they're doing. And no doubt, I think they have a lot of maturing to do and they'll improve. But for the most part, like Google's an incredible product. Amazon is an incredible product and experience. And 85% of people are, you know, when push comes to shove, they're like, no, I'm satisfied with Amazon. Yeah, again, to me, it's the interesting point is it, it's absolutely that but it's also the reverse too who are, who are the 15 percent who are the that are not happy with amazon the 18 percent not happy with google yeah they're just never gonna be happy with anything yeah. uh, maybe well and it's really funny because uh, i've heard and stand up somewhere and i'm gonna totally commandeer this joke but the joke's been made that just because i buy one uh baby gate for my house i haven't become a baby gate connoisseur and yet amazon will pester me via email via you know products they recommend for like weeks to buy more baby gates. I already have enough. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I'm not one of those 15% who are not happy with Amazon. I'm very happy with my experience with Amazon. Yeah, and I think even there, like, you could help. It's the catch-22 of these platforms today, right? Like, the more data you give them, the more information they give them, the better they work. Like, it is creepy that Google knows where you are every second of every day because you have the location settings on your phone turned on. 
But at the same time, that's also a really useful piece of information they can use to deliver you a good experience. And I... I've been accused definitely before as like a Google apologist in a ways, but that is a fact. Like the more they know about you, the better service they can deliver. And I think this slide shows that they're delivering great service. However they might be getting there, maybe they need to improve. But, you know, all in all, Google, Amazon, pretty impressive what they're offering to the market. Another company that I'm always impressed with what they're offered to the market is the next slide here. Slide 267. And this goes through Slack's crazy growth, pretty much. And their kind of move 2013 to small teams to 2017 servicing small teams, large teams, medium teams, all sorts of teams. Everybody's using Slack from police organizations. I read an incredible article that talked about a police force using Slack and how it helps them. And they're daily active users. So right now, Slack has just under 8 million daily active users closed in 2017. Um, I guess a few months back, stats are probably above 8 million now. And 34% of those are paying customers. So these are people that, you know, are delivering revenue to Slack. And I think it'll be interesting to see as Slack moves toward a position where they might be able to IPO, get a little more information on the financials. But it shows the workplace is changing, no doubt about that. Yeah, and this slide is titled Consumerization of the Enterprise Software Business Model. And so it's, it's really interesting, again, from a product standpoint to think about, is there anything we can learn from Slack that we can apply to our business to do that, that massive growth scale? Yeah. And to me, too, it shows the kind of the meaning of B2C and B2B is a little like the way people buy. It's a it's a little more similar now than it was four or five, six years ago. And I think Slack's a good example of that. They acted very much like a B2C, but are now one of the biggest productivity softwares in the B2B uh, workspace. All right. My last slide, slide 280. And this is the United States of America income statement over the last 50 years. So what stood out to you, Nicole, here, looking at this, there this graph? There is one very small green blip from 1996 to 2000-ish when we were positive, but uh, the USA has had net losses for 45 of 50 years. Yeah, and I definitely don't pretend to understand all the macroeconomic conditions and forces at play here with this, but... It is interesting to just see generally the, if you looked at the USA as a business, if we're generating a profit or loss, you can see we've never generated losses at a higher rate than we did through 2008 to 2012. And even still, 2016, the United States, we lost over $500 billion from a pure P&L perspective. Now there's a lot of bonds, securities, everything in there. But if you look at dollars in, dollars out to the USA income statement, you know, we need to maybe find some ways to, to turn the tide here. And you know, that's what I, I think we're kind of all in this together. And it be interesting to see where those red bars uh, go over the next few decades. Absolutely. All right. So I think that pretty much sums up the internet trends of 2018 report, huh? Anything else? Yeah, no, I I don't really think we have a finishing takeaway here because we have so many takeaways that we talked about, but you know, we'd be interested to see if you guys have any slides that really stood out to you that again, you're going to help 
you shape your conversations about digital advertising this week or in the future. Yeah, and definitely keep an eye on the blog. We'll get the video version of this up too with the slides in the background so you can visualize it as we're talking about it as an option too, but we'll get it normal podcast form. Obviously, if you listen to it, made it this far there. We'll have all details, notes, uh, our contact information, emails in the show notes. And thanks so much for listening and talk to you guys next week. And do we have a better outro yet, Nicole? Other than over and out? I like over and out. Me too. All right. Over and out. From Bend, Oregon. Mm-hmm.